This has been kind of an interesting morning. One of those mornings I feel like we haven't really had in a while, um, where it's like one thing after another seems to be going wrong or not working. We had trouble getting the the PowerPoint even connected to the projector. My microphone literally like fell apart <laughs> a few minutes before service started. Uh, we didn't really know where the bulletins were coming from, so it's been a little chaotic. Everything ended up working out. You know, Jessica brought the bulletins, Jason fixed my microphone, Paul was able to reach the projector to reset the thing. So I'm thankful for how tall Paul is this morning. Um, ultimately, though, it's really those are those things don't really matter because we're here to to worship together in spirit and in truth. And technology is nice, and bulletins are nice, but we don't really need those things. They're secondary to our, our real purpose for being here. Um, and on the flip side of that, it looks pretty great in here, doesn't it? It's a lot of work that went into the whole transformation in here and. The carpet's awesome, and I'm really thankful for all the, the work that was put into by volunteers to come together. Even down to, you know, last time we were here two weeks ago, everyone working together to clear out everything so we could get the carpet in. Um, I'm just super grateful for, for all of that. This morning, we're going to be returning, and I had such a cool uh, title slide. I'll have it hopefully next week, but... Um, we'll be returning to the, the Old Testament narrative um, where we kind of left off back in December. Uh, we kind of stepped away for a while from the, the narrative in the Old Testament to look at the overarching concept of the kingdom uh, and how Jesus played into that, how that tied into the coming of the Messiah leading up to Christmas. And just before that, we had been making our way through, we went through Judges and then we were in 1 Samuel so I want to first just give us a quick recap of what has happened so far in the story uh, before moving on in 1 Samuel. And Samuel, it picks up, the book starts kind of in the wake of all the chaos that we saw in the book of Judges, uh, where you know people were doing what was right in their own eyes instead of following God. And we are introduced in 1 Samuel to this family who actually is worshiping God, worshiping uh, Yahweh the way they are supposed to be, um, in the temple, in the, the right place. And this woman, though, Hannah, was, was barren. She couldn't have children. And in her, in her distress and desperation, she cried out to God, and he did allow her to have a child. He gave her a son, Samuel, who then was given back to God. She gave him back to God to be um, of service in the temple. And just as a kind of a side note here, we talked a little bit about Hannah's poem, uh, and we heard it even read as part of the, the service during um, the music time. And that poem had a few key themes um, that we'll find throughout the rest of the book. And you might want to write these down. I had a slide for it. <laughs> I don't know what happened to it. Um, so these, these three themes you'll see occurring um, throughout the story into First and Second Samuel and Kings and, and on into the his, you know, all the historical books. Um, and you can see these themes throughout the poem. I'm not going to read through the whole poem now, um, but you'll see that she talks about how God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. And then how God is at work in the world despite the evil things that people do, despite human depravity, God is at work. And then 
the hope and the promise that God will raise up a messianic king for the Jews. And uh, so those are kind of three theological points that you, you can see throughout the poem and just keep those themes in mind as we continue through the story. And I'll, I'll bring them back up later. Uh, so back to our, our recap here. Samuel grew up in the temple. He uh, became an adult and eventually a prophet and a, a great leader for Israel. But eventually Israel demanded that they have a king. They wanted to be like their other neighbors around them, their other, the surrounding countries around them. And Samuel told them that that was not a good idea. He told them it was a, a bad idea, warned them about that, but they really didn't care. And God said to Samuel, you know what, just give them what they want. And in fact, we talked a little bit about how God knew they were going to want this and actually had provisions and, and laws for when they had a king that he gave them when they were still in the wilderness. Um, so God then, through Samuel, anointed Saul as the first king, the very first king over Israel. And he was a popular choice. He was tall and he was strong, and he led Israel through some uh, important victories. But then ultimately, he disobeyed God, and because of that, he was rejected by God. He, instead of, he was supposed to totally wipe out um, this one enemy completely, and instead he kept some of the livestock for sacrifice. And in doing that, he basically showed that he cared more about what his people thought of him and what they were demanding and, and suggesting more so than what God was telling him to do. And that really began the fall and the eventual demise of Saul. Uh, and you can read that whole story of how he messed up um, and the consequences of that in chapter 15 of, of 1 Samuel. And it's, it's pretty gnarly, actually. But we're going to pick up the story after that in, in chapter 16. And this is where we get introduced to David for the first time. And Mike and I did talk a little bit about David during our, our tag team series uh, on the kingdom. But I, I want us to actually go back and read through and talk about some of these major plot points in more detail uh, in the story of David. And it's, it's, I promise it's not just because I, I like my own name and want to you know, say it out loud a lot. Uh, it's really just because this David, the son of Jesse David, is such a major character of the Old Testament. Um, and his story is, is one of the most detailed and epic stories of any character that we have. And it has a lot of practical and, and easy kind of takeaways, uh, lessons to learn uh, from his life but also some kind of weird and, and challenging stuff uh, if you actually take the time to read through it, and we'll come across one of those things today. The David's story, actually, if you think of Saul having a, a rise and fall, kind of an, an arc to his story, David has a kind of a similar uh, rise and, and fall as, as Saul's, but it's, it lasts longer <laughs> uh, than, than Saul's did, and there are a lot more pages dedicated to documenting it. But we'll see at the beginning how their two stories kind of overlap. Uh, so as, as Saul is beginning his decline, God is kind of working in the background to raise David up in his place. So let's, let's dive into 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're going to follow along, you can turn there now, starting right from verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. 
as the king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Uh, he, he clearly, his, his reputation preceded him. Um, and they knew he was a prophet, and the prophet coming rolling into town was not always a, a good sign, a good thing. Uh, but yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. So we'll stop there for a second. God is going to now have Samuel anoint someone else as king. And this idea of anointing, that word is kind of somewhat foreign to us, uh, but really all it means to anoint someone is to choose them uh, in, in a, an official, divinely appointed kind of way. And in this case, it was symbolized in their culture by just this ritual pouring of oil on someone's head. That sounds really weird to us. We don't do that, but that's just the way they did it. And everyone then understood what that meant, the significance of that. But Samuel's very hesitant, understandably, to do this because we know God has rejected Saul and the spirit of God was no longer on Saul, but he, for political purposes, he's still the king. He's the guy in charge. He's still the king of Israel. And he's proud. He's a proud king. He likes his power. And Samuel knows that if word gets out about him going to anoint someone else's king, then he's going to have to face a really upset and angry Saul. So God gave him this sort of workaround of having an excuse of performing a sacrifice and then inviting just coincidentally inviting Jesse and his sons to come and, and be a part of it. Kind of a, a cover-up to what's really going on. Uh, so let's see how that plays out, picking up in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord has chosen. And in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So God is obviously teaching Samuel and then subsequently teaching us a lesson here. And he says it very clearly, the lesson that he's teaching in verse 7. Uh, and this lesson goes back again to our discussion from judges about uh, people doing what's right in their own eyes instead of relying on God's direction. And I feel like I, I've brought this up over and over since then, uh, but I think it's because the Bible <laughs> brings it up over and over again. Uh, so, in, And in fact, in this in one example specifically, God didn't just use the first brother as the example and then you know choose the second one who 
Samuel wasn't expecting. He goes through all seven of the brothers uh, before before finally getting to David. And um, that just seems like a very intentional move to me. By the seventh one, I have to imagine Samuel must have been feeling like, okay, yeah, I get it. It's not going to be who I expected, but you have to choose someone. Why am I here? You know? Um, and of course, we do finally get to David in verse 11. Samuel asks, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. That's a strong motivator. Uh, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. So God finally chose the last person, literally the last person anyone expected, the lowliest of the brothers. He was the one left behind to tend to the sheep. Um, and because of that, Jesse must have figured that, you know, he really had no chance of being chosen. He was, he was an afterthought. And it does actually still mention that he was young and handsome, which I think is kind of funny, because obviously that is so clearly not what God was, was looking at. And I imagine that if his brothers knew what was going on, and they must have, they had to have understood what was going on by the end, they must have felt a little bit jealous, a little bit cheated. This isn't the way things worked in their society. This was so backwards. In ancient Jewish society, the, everything went from oldest to youngest. So the, the oldest would get the, the, the best inherit, inheritance, the most wealth, and the most honor among the brothers. And this is just one of many glimpses that we see throughout the Old Testament uh, of that, that upside-down kingdom mentality that we talked about a few weeks ago and that Jesus came to preach about. And here, it's a demonstration of how God's kingdom works, how he sees things, even as he's establishing a king on earth. So, <clears throat> David's been chosen, and by now he's known at least by his family and by Sam, excuse me, Samuel, as the Lord's anointed. But no one else really knows that yet. So how does that work? If there's going to be a king or a new king, that doesn't really work unless everyone knows about it. And no one does, least of all Saul. And it turns out God had somewhat of a process in store for David and for Saul for this transition it's not something that was just going to happen overnight. So at this point, we kind of zoom out from David and pan, o pan over and cut to back to Saul and see what's up with him. So let's keep on reading, starting in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, a tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music, and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. 
So Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, Send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse responded by sending David to Saul, along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread, and a wineskin full of wine. That's what you do when the king sends for your son. You send him with lots of gifts. So David went to Saul and began serving him. Saul loved David very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. Then Saul would feel better, and the tormenting spirit would go away. All right, so there are a couple things to talk about here. And first of all, I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets kind of taken aback by that phrase, troubling spirit from God. And a lot of you probably have the translation, evil spirit from God. And that just, that sounds so wrong, doesn't it? Evil spirit from God, that just sounds blasphemous. Like that's, that's an oxymoron. Um, and <laughs> side note, speaking of, of heresy, I strongly considered using these few weeks while, while Mike is gone to preach about some topics like how the Bible teaches that you don't have a soul, um, that there are many gods, and you really don't go to heaven when you die. Um, so I, I decided I'd better wait until he's back so he can kind of like back me up and you don't think I'm crazy. Um, and if you might think I'm joking, I'm 100% serious about that. It's, it's going to happen. We'll see. But uh, I do have a good explanation for, for all of those things, so don't uh, run me out just yet. But anyway, so what do we do with this, this phrase, evil spirit or troubling spirit from God? Um, and to be honest, this is something I'm not 100% sure of myself. So if any of you have insight and you want to tell me, uh, please, by all means, talk to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, but that said, there are a couple different ways to interpret this, to read this. And no matter what your conclusion is, I think we can still say very matter-of-factly that God is completely righteous. He hates evil, and he does never do anything unjust. Uh, but first of all, I want to look at that word that's translated most often as evil um, in, in this passage. It's usually evil in most of the translations I looked at. The Hebrew word there is the word ra. Okay, and it, it can be translated into English in a variety of ways, and you can see that same word ra being translated throughout the Old Testament in, in a variety of ways. And in my opinion, <clears throat> that word evil is often not the most helpful translation of, of that word. So in, in English, that word evil, especially nowadays, refers pretty specifically to a moral, um, a moral measurement of something. But ra, it does include that, but it's, it's not quite that specific. So it's, it's actually a pretty ambiguous word just on its own. So you have to really look to the context of the sentence and what's going on to figure out the nuances of the meaning of that word ra in any particular case. So in that way, it's actually pretty close to our English word bad, right? That's kind of just an ambiguous word. We don't use it a lot in literature because it's not specific enough. Um, but... In that, in that way, that it can be used in a lot of ways. So you can refer to a morally bad thing to do or say, right? That can, it can be, have a moral connotation, but you can also have a bad day or a bad lunch or a bad knee, right? So it can be used in all those ways that you really wouldn't use evil to describe 
an evil lunch, you know, or an evil knee. I mean, you might, but it would be kind of in, in a joking way. An evil day this is very different from this, a bad day. So, so that word ra is just kind of a general adjective of, of negativity uh, or a noun. It can be a noun or an adjective. So depending on the context, it can mean evil or troubling, even just annoying. Uh, and the opposite, this is kind of a side note, but the opposite of ra is tov. So tov is good, ra is bad. And it's exactly those two words that are used to describe the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. It's the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra. So it's really the, the knowledge of, of good and bad, um, not just moral evil, uh, but and, and even the, the word knowledge is an experiential knowledge, the same word that Adam knew his wife right, in, the, in the biblical sense. So it's an experiential knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, so it's an experience of, of good and bad. Um, but I'm getting sidetracked. So we're looking at this, this bad spirit. Um, and I was reading through all my, my commentaries on this, and there are basically two ways to, to read this, um, read into the spirit. And it's entirely possible that, that God just sent a literal spiritual being to Saul uh, to cause you know, this, this unpleasant situation. Um, or we could read this as God influencing Saul's own spirit um, instead of there being a third party interacting with Saul. But either way you still have to reckon with the fact that God's causing this unpleasantness in Saul's life. And that can, you can look at that as either a punitive judgment for his actions, the things that he did wrong, or as even a potential pathway to redemption, as a trial to, to redeem him, or even a combination of, of both of those things. And when you look at it that way, really, neither of those purposes, whether he is judging Saul with this, action or um, trying to redeem him, we really shouldn't be surprised at either of those purposes because those are, we see God working for, in, it, we see him doing actions of judgment and redemption all throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Although the, the Old Testament is certainly heavier on the judgment, we see God's judgment being more acted on in, in the Old Testament um, because that then shows our need for redemption, which was then provided ultimately through Christ, and he took on the judgment for us. So ultimately, we might never fully comprehend God's reasoning or rationale behind some of the things uh, he does in a case like this, but I know after wrestling with it a little bit, I can say that at least say with confidence this passage and this phrase really doesn't conflict with uh, an idea of God's holiness and righteousness. Um, so moving on from that, we can also see how that situation clearly played into God's plan for David. And this might just be me, but this really seems like a glimpse into God's sense of humor. I can't prove it, but it really seems like God loves irony and ironic situations. And if you if you're not sure you agree with me, I would recommend you go and read the whole story of Esther and see if that changes your mind. Uh, so yeah, because here's David. He's supposedly going to usurp the throne, either directly from Saul or at least from his bloodline. And Saul has no idea. He has no clue. He, but then he invites him in and has him working for him in his court as a musician. And 
I've got to say that would that would be a really high pressure job. I think it would be like saying, "Hey, John." We've got this super upset, angry king, and he's depressed and manic. You need to go in there and play your guitar for him until he calms down. Uh, and we'll, we'll see more how that does play out um, as we continue on in the story. Um, and we'll also see a lot more of how God's sovereignty is really on display, how he's orchestrating these events um, and the way it all works out. And this is actually the point in the story where things start to really ramp up and get really exciting. The, the drama and the action, the suspense all get really dialed up uh, from here on out. But we're going to have to pause here in the story and, and wait uh, for next week to continue. Uh, so to wrap it up for today, I first want to go back and remind you of those three themes that I brought up earlier uh, that we pulled out of Hannah's poem. So the first is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Opposes the proud, exalts the humble, and that God is at work even in the midst of human depravity. And then finally, that hope and the promise that God will raise up a messianic king. And we can already see all three of these themes in the story, in David's story. So you have the proud king Saul uh, in decline, while this humble shepherd boy David is, is on his way to being exalted. And God, again, is clearly at work in this story, uh, even in the midst of bad decisions being made, whether by Israel at large as a nation or even just Saul himself. And then David, while he's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ that we see in Jesus, but he will become a beacon of hope for Israel. And he's a foreshadowing of the ultimate Lord's anointed one. And in fact, that word Messiah or Christ really just literally means anointed one. So we, we see that in there too. And I, I think those three themes are just going to be a really helpful framework for understanding the whole rest of this historical narrative. And as for a, a practical takeaway, the, the first, and I, I think the most obvious one, is again just that, that lesson that's stated so clearly in verse 7. Uh, it's, it's a great verse to memorize, especially the second half of it. And I know I've, again, reiterated this point a lot lately, but it is so foundational to these sections of, of Scripture. And if the Bible repeats it, then I'm going to repeat it, and I'm not going to be sorry for it. So, uh, so once again, for good measure, I'll, I'll read verse 7. Uh, and this time I inserted the, the personal name of, of God in there instead of the replacement. Uh, so, But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what Yahweh sees, for humans see what is visible, but Yahweh sees the heart. It, just, it doesn't get much more straightforward than that. It's very to the point. Uh, and I just think that we all need to challenge ourselves daily to truly live like we believe that. So both in how we see ourselves and present ourselves, realizing that it's really what's going on inside that matters, but then also in how we see and interact with other people around us, not judging or evaluating people based on how they look or how they talk or uh, how, how they dress, what they've accomplished or how popular they are. Really, we need to be interested in what's going on inside people's lives, their, their thoughts and their fears and their hopes and their dreams and their struggles, because that's really what God cares about. And then the second and the last takeaway is that 
when we do spend time reading the and studying these Old Testament stories, it is so often a reminder of how much we have to be thankful in Christ. And this is also sounding like a, a lot of, of a, a repeat of what we talked in, uh, about in December, but again, it's just something that can't be re- repeated too much. So I think it's just always a reminder to live daily in gratitude to our Savior, and then also in service of the one true and, and perfect King that we have. Let's pray.